Amen. <coughs> I want to call your attention now to the book of Romans chapter 12. For the last time, Romans chapter 12, we come to the end of a journey that began 21 weeks ago, and we have verses nine or verses 20 and 21 to consider here by God's grace this afternoon, Romans 12. Let's get a little of the context here and go back to verse 17 for our reading. Recompense to no man evil for evil. <clears throat> Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. This is the end of this chapter, which we have labeled <clears throat> basic Christian duties. And it ends on this strong and convicting note of verses 20 and 21. We've seen something about the grace of humility and recognition and use of our God-given gifts. And then our reaction to people and circumstances. And here in these closing verses, our reaction especially toward evil, regardless of the source of evil. We saw the instruction there in verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves <clears throat> do not seek revenge and we saw one reason why in verse 19 because vengeance belongs to God it doesn't belong to us vengeance is his property his prerogative we are to Get out of the way. Give place unto God for his vengeance, his wrath in whatever way and measure he sees fit to exercise it in such a case, in, in a case of personal wrong that has been done against us. <clears throat> now there's a couple of more reasons given in verses 20 and 21 as to why we should not avenge ourselves and the first is, in verse 20, that kindness moves the heart of others more 
than anger or revenge. That is something of a summary of verse 20 here. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. It's interesting to note again that the apostle is quoting from the Old Testament. He quoted in verse 19 from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes here from the book of Proverbs. And I'll turn and read it from the book of Proverbs. It says, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. And that's where the apostle stops the quotation. The rest of the verse, Proverbs 25, 22 says, And the Lord shall reward thee. The giving of food to the hungry enemy and the giving of drink to the thirsty enemy is undoubtedly an example or a metaphor for doing good in any way that you providentially can, in any way that you have opportunity to do. Another passage of Scripture that might fit in the same category is Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray. Now, just just picture this. You have this enemy, and he's your enemy. He's been mean to you. He doesn't like you. And you recognize his livestock, uh, you know, out in the road. What are you supposed to do? Say, oh yes, this is, this is, this is such a blessing. That is our natural response. That's not the supernatural response. That's not the response of grace. So, If thou see thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Can you imagine the response of that enemy when you go back and knock on his door and say, I found your ox uh, down the road here, and I just am bringing him back. What an embarrassment. What what a, a, a heaping of coals upon his head. That's what it says. In so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. <clears throat> this is what is described in verse 17 in the last part of the verse as providing things honest in the sight of all men. And when we were there in that verse, you recall, we looked at it kind of word for word that provide means to prepare beforehand. And the word honest is literally the word good. Prepare good in advance. Prepare to do good. 
in the sight of all men. Have your mind firmly fixed upon this principle that if you can help your enemy, that is one who is a personal antagonist against you, if you can help him in any way, do so. Is there any instruction in Holy Scripture any more challenging than this? I'm not sure that there is. This is a tall order. It goes against all that is natural to us. It takes much grace to obey this instruction. But when we obey, the inward peace that we find is priceless. Not to mention how the Lord may use it in the life of the enemy. So we should be a friend to all and be an enemy to none. If others are determined to be an enemy to us, let us not be an enemy to them. This is the same principle that the Lord gave in the Sermon on the Mount in these words. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. He goes on to say that this is the attitude of God himself toward his enemies. And it's what we are called upon to imitate by saving grace. The reason given here is, In so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And upon just a casual reading of this, you might say, well, then you're supposed to help your your enemy so that the wrath of God against him will be even greater. But that would destroy the whole sense of this passage and and of the passage in Proverbs that this is quoted from. The heaping of coals of fire upon his head is to bring him to shame and remorse for his bad treatment of you. Seeing that you have treated him better than he has treated you, the Lord very likely may use your good conduct to him to convict him about his bad conduct toward you. He will burn with shame and burn with embarrassment. He may eventually improve his attitude toward you. And I say eventually because sometimes it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes the the feeding and uh Offering a drink to the enemy brings an initial reaction of even more intense enmity because he's so angry that you're being nice to him. And he makes it all the harder on you. And all the while, deep within, he is so convicted and he's, he has these burning coals that won't burn out. <clears throat> Then 
over time as he reflects upon it, God oftentimes at least will make his attitude to change toward you and perhaps his attitude toward God will change also. As he sees the grace of God manifested in you, he may be led to repent toward God. What a blessing that would be. And so by your patience and goodness, fan the flame of repentance in the heart of this other person. Do not flame Do not fan the flame of hostility by getting revenge. That's what avenging yourself would do. It would just make the fire burn in a whole different way, bigger and bigger. Another proverb that is relevant here is the one that says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words... Stir up anger. And another proverb that speaks of the one who wins souls is wise. What our text describes here, Romans 12, 20, is the winning or the taking of a soul, the gaining of a soul. You gain the soul to yourself and perhaps the Lord will be pleased to use that to gain the soul for him. You know, it's interesting that that verse is used as the, the prop for a a whole method of evangelism that is just utterly not only foreign to scripture, but against scripture and has led to nothing but an avalanche of Phony professions of faith. And I know Mr. Spurgeon, bless his heart, he used the phrase himself. He meant good by it. He wrote a little book called The Soul Winner, a tremendous book. In the context of Proverbs, it seems to be saying, make friends, win friends. And that that is what a wise man does. Certainly what the Christian does according to Romans 12, verse 20. You win him to yourself, yes, in hopes of winning him to Christ. And so the best thing that you can do for anyone is to encourage them to repent of their sin before God. And you can encourage them by words, And by deeds. And the deeds would include feeding, giving drink, returning the lost animal, and so on. I feel like I keep using the same examples from Scripture again and again, but I've not actually read these verses that I want to read here now. David was kind, patient, generous toward Saul when Saul was ugly, mean, hateful, and and had murder in his heart. 
And David was able, by God's grace, to maintain his composure and his uh, patience and, and his whole perspective. And yes, in some respects, he disarmed Saul with his generosity. Listen to what Saul says here on a couple of occasions. It came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I. Well, what had David done? He had heaped coals of fire upon Saul. And Saul was so ashamed of himself for how terribly he had, he had treated David. Thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killedst me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that that thou hast done unto me this day. And then on a subsequent occasion, similarly, then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. One writer who is so liberal, I don't think he really knew what the gospel is. But sometimes he has some practical insights. I don't think I'll even mention his name. But he said this, Vengeance may break his spirit, but kindness will break his heart. Have you ever been treated kindly by someone that you treated badly? If so, then you know exactly what this verse is talking about. You've had coals heaped upon your head. And it brought shame and conviction to your heart. And the Lord used that for your good, didn't He? And we're called upon to go and do the same. Now, in verse 21, we have another reason not to avenge ourselves, not to get revenge. And it is this, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And what that amounts to is this, if you seek revenge... You have been conquered by evil. And the instruction here is, it's a command. Do not be overcome of evil. Don't allow yourself to be conquered like that. But rather, overcome evil with good. And though the pronouns aren't here, obviously in the context it's, Overcome 
the evil of your enemy with your good. If, on the other hand, you get revenge, you have been overcome of evil. Not just the evil of that person, but evil on a much deeper level, the evil of Satan himself. In other words, don't hand Satan an easy victory. At least make Satan put up a fight. Robert Haldane summarizes the verse in this way. To yield to anger is to be conquered by the enemy. When we seek to avenge ourselves, what are we doing? We're trying to overcome evil with evil. And that never works. You can never overcome evil with evil. Evil only adds to evil. It doesn't overcome it. The only thing that overcomes evil is goodness. And the goodness of one is oftentimes God's instrument to work goodness in another. This principle is counterintuitive to us. In fact, it is so against our intuition and what is natural to us that as far as I know, only biblical Christianity has any concept of this standard and this principle of overcoming evil with good. The best of man-made religions seek to overcome evil with evil. The commentator Albert Barnes says, quote, This is the noble and grand sentiment of the Christian religion. Nothing like this is to be found in the heathen classics, and nothing like it ever existed among pagan nations. Christianity alone has brought forth this lovely and mighty principle, and one design of it is to advance the welfare of man by promoting peace, harmony, and love. The idea of overcoming evil with good never occurred to men until the gospel was preached. It never has been acted upon except under the influences of the gospel. End quote. <clears throat> I know <clears throat> what you're thinking. Because I'm thinking the same thing. I tell you, I'm an expert on human nature because I have one. And I am one. You say, but you don't know how bad it was. You don't know the harm. You don't know the damage. You don't know the grief. You don't know what this person did to me. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones was right when he said something along these lines that the response of a mature and gracious heart is not to be concerned with 
the damage that's been done, but with what my response to it ought to be. How has it affected me? How is it conquering me? Am I governing my own spirit? Am I responding like I should to this harm that has been done? We must not let others conquer us by destroying our own inward peace and keeping us agitated and troubled and destroying that rest that we find in Christ, that peace that passes all understanding. Let us be concerned with a gracious response. And I think it may have been John Newton who who first said something like this. If not, then it was some, some good mature Christian a long time ago upon seeing, I think, a drunkard stumbling down the street said, but for the grace of God, there go I. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you or I would be the one dishing out evil and harm and injury and persecution. Only the grace of God has made us to differ. And we need His grace abundantly to rule our own spirit. Another relevant proverb is the one that says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. In other words, it speaks for itself. He that ruleth his spirit, then he that taketh a city. How wonderful it is to to conquer a city. How much better to conquer your own spirit. So let me give this biblical example of what we're talking about here. There's a scene in the book of Acts where there's a very angry man and there's a very gracious man. The angry man is Saul of Tarsus who breathes out threats and slaughter against Christians. And the gracious man is Stephen, the first recorded martyr in the book of Acts and in Christian history. And Stephen is not breathing out threats and slaughter. What he's breathing out is, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. What was Stephen doing there? He was showing his concern for the the good of the souls of those who were stoning him and, and even the one who's holding their garments so they won't get spattered with blood. Stephen was heaping coals of fire on Saul's head. Stephen was overcoming evil with good. 
And so who conquered? Did Saul of Tarsus conquer Stephen as Stephen was stoned to death? In a sense, of course. But in a much deeper and more profound sense, Stephen conquered Saul. And though initially Saul is more enraged than ever, he's from that point forward kicking against these jabs of conviction that undoubtedly began that day when Stephen heaped coals of fire on his head. And finally Saul got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. And the Lord throws him on the ground and reveals Christ to him. And you know the rest of the story. Paul the Apostle knew something personally of this, didn't he? His evil had been overcome with Stephen's good. If you want to destroy your enemy, make him your friend. If you want to destroy yourself, remain an enemy. We need to remember this. We need to remember it especially if we are persecuted for our faith someday in prison or worse. Overcome evil with good. Now, there's certainly a more general application to this. And this is the way the verse is usually quoted and used just as far as our own personal indwelling sin. You know, overcome evil with good, replace uh, bad habits with good habits and so on. And that principle is certainly taught in Ephesians and Colossians. But here in the context, it's the evil of others that we overcome with our own Patience and love toward them. We're never commanded to like our enemies, but we're commanded to love them. I wish I could say that I have always followed Romans 12. May God forgive us and help us not to continue in avenging ourselves. So as we conclude here today, let's consider the whole picture here of this chapter We started out in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's because of God's mercies to us that we have the motive and the means to carry out these various commands 
and duties given to us in this chapter. And this applies especially so much here toward the end of the chapter. You can't miss this. Has not God himself given us the most amazing example of overcoming evil with good in his mercies toward us? In our fallen state, we have been enemies against him. We have treated him so evil. But if you're a Christian, he has conquered you with kindness, hasn't he? By his mercies, he melted our hearts with the gracious sacrifice of his son for our sins on the cross. He has overcome our evil with his good. Now let us go and do the same. This is a very liberating principle if we can find the grace to live by it. So I'll say again here as we close, if you want to destroy your enemy, in fact, one writer says the only way to destroy your enemy truly is to make him your friend. And if you want rather to destroy yourself, then remain an enemy. Be adversarial. There may be cases, as our text says, it's impossible. It's simply impossible to live peaceably. But as much as lieth in you, labor to that end. Let's sing a hymn together. Number 552. Five hundred fifty-two in the red hymnal, and let's stand together as we sing.